So last week we looked at reformation through boundaries. Mm. We learned that a boundary is, is a boundary in the direction that you're supposed to be going is an obstacle. And a boundary in the direction that you're not supposed to be going is a warning. Yes. We talked about how God uses boundaries to help us appreciate the difference in people rather than be upset by them. We also learned that boundaries help us to have our own sense of identity. It tells those in relationship with us what to expect and what we expect from them and vice versa. Boundaries help protect you from them and them from you. Uh, boundaries are, of course, different than walls. All right. As Janiah so eloquently placed on last week's re review. Um, but boundaries need to be established regardless. And if you do not establish a boundary, a boundary is always established for you. Amen. 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 So today I want to look at um, a topic on Reformation since this is the year of Reformation. Yes. I want to look at a topic that the father gave us last year. And I don't know how he gave it to us last year. And then it comes up this week and um, it's pertinent to the activities, um, the festivities that we've had on the past week. It's a wonderful topic because it allows your heart to expand and to grow. Uh, let's get into it. Reformation through family. I tried to tell some of you. Now, I know... Um, that there are some in the house are like, what's so wrong with that? That's a great topic, how our family changes us. But the majority of this house is going, oh, crap. The family change. Oh, tell me about it. The family do change you. You know, I wonder what I would have been if my family hadn't changed me. I wonder where I would have gone, what I would have done. And unfortunately and fortunately in this house, we have a lot of individuals that have suffered in their family. Um, Maybe that's why the Lord made us a family of believers, building the empire of Christ. Amen. He foresook, foreknew, foreknown that you would be here. Um, those of you that have wonderful family lives, that is great. I am one of those people. May the Lord bless you, okay? But those of us that did not, this is for them. So if you find that your mind is wandering because you had such a wonderful upbringing, then bring it back in and pray for those who did not, amen, as they are going to be wrestling within themselves. Yes? All right. So I don't know how, you know how they used to put on the Instagram trigger warning? This is one of them days. Okay, so if you had a great ch childhood, then pray for others, amen, uh, as they are definitely going to be squirming in their seats and a bit uncomfortable. Yes? Holidays in my family were awesome. They were great. My dad was a superhero, coming in the door on Christmas Eve with a box bigger than my body, filled with something that I don't even know what it was. My mom said winter clothes. I said, shucks. But I tried to pretend like I was happy. I was not happy for getting no winter clothes for a big old box on Christmas. Don't no kid want clothes on Christmas. Some of y'all did, but I did not. Did she? I was up all night trying to think what's in the box, what's in the box, what's in the box. Couldn't even sleep, toss and turn. Mom came in teasing me. Well, it's some dirty socks. Dirty socks, mom, really. 
It ain't even for you, it's for somebody else. And I was inclined to believe it because that worked last year. Found somebody else's toys. The neighbors was hiding in the closet, but it in fact was my toys and I did not know it. And when they were out under the tree, I came out on Christmas Day, mommy's daddy said, open the gifts. I was like, them are not my gifts. Them are the kids' gifts next door. I'm waiting on them to come get theirs so I can get mine. Uh, I believe my parents when they said that wasn't my gift. So naive. I'm trustworthy, maybe. Trusting, overly trusting, because those were my presents. So when dad came in with this huge box, I was super excited, couldn't wait to figure out what it was. Christmas day, it was a Super Nintendo. Y'all don't know about the Nintendo. You know about the Switch and whatever. You don't know about the, you don't know about the pad. The and the first days you learned how the shot was on that pad. See, y'all look clueless, clueless. They had the little running pad. Had the gun with duck hunt. Y'all don't know nothing about that. My dad got me the deluxe, okay? Had all the stuff in it. What was, I know, what was interesting about this gift is I never said I wanted a Nintendo. And my dad and my parents, I agree, my parents always tried to make me cool and I was just heck bent on being lame. I tell you what. My mom tried to dress me cool. I don't want that. Give me a button-up shirt to the top. <laughs> Pocket protector. She's like, wear your hair out. No, slick it back. Put it down. I was just not into it. Couldn't be cool for nothing in the world. Dad was like, got a Nintendo. You about to be the coolest kid on the block. One year they got me a trampoline. I'm about to be the coolest kid ever. I mean, they were always trying to level me up and I just refused to be cool. Tough road for them as parents. But holiday season for us was not drama filled. And that is not true of most families. It was times when trauma was not done. We have drama on other days. Somebody crazy birthday party or spades night, you know. We ain't having drama on no holiday. We're about to eat this good food. And I think that's what it was. We had good food. It's hard to be angry with good food in your belly. It's hard to feel like fighting when you got the itis, you understand? That's probably what it was. Everybody in my family could cook. I mean, burn, you understand? So we ain't never had no problems other than who took the last edge of the uh, macaroni and cheese, you know, that kind of thing. But other than that, it was always enough food for people to take home, so you weren't even fighting over that. It was like, I'm not taking no more food home. You take it. We already got bags of it. We don't want no more bags of it. And in my job and, and in, throughout my life, I've run into people who that was not the case. Um, holidays were stressful, painful, um, and even now the holiday season may not be um, what you had hoped um, as you wrestle with the pain of years in the past. So let's look at reformation through family because we were smack dab in the middle of the holiday just after Thanksgiving and rolling into Christmas and the new year. The problem with family is you're born into it. <laughs> you're born into family and you don't know what you're getting until you got it. And then around your teenage years, you start looking at other people's families. 
Like you might have knew it elementary and middle, you know, but vaguely. You go over to their house and their house always stank, you know. You kind of got an idea, you know, different families live, live differently, you understand. But for the most part, you didn't really calculate the differences until you get to high school. High school lets you see everybody that's different, how all the ways that your, your family has fallen short. I don't ever get no new shoes. I don't know nobody ever asked me to go nowhere. I can't go on none of the uh, outings. My parents ain't gonna sign my permission slip. We ain't got no money to go on that trip. I guess I'm gonna get Fs all the time. Nobody asked me if I needed a tutor. And you're just constantly bombarded with the things. Yeah. No, this was not my life. I'm, 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 I'm talking about your life. I don't want you to think that. <laughs> Again, I had a really great childhood, which is why I think the Lord blessed me so that we could establish something here. All right, amen? So childhood was difficult for a lot of people. And when you get to high school, you start calculating all the ways that your family is different and your friends talk about it and you, you compare notes. And now with the Instagram and all the social medias, everybody's trying to tell you what's wrong with your family and what's wrong with your mom and what's wrong with your dad. And now this generation, this younger generation, has no trust in their own parents because they can see something on the outside and then social media tells them what's happening on the inside of their parents and they disagree. See, back in the day, your personal house business stayed in your house. Right. You ain't know what was going on in somebody else's house, and they ain't know what was going on in yours. You didn't know that you, your parent was going through depression. You was like, I don't know why my mama be in there drinking all the time. She don't never come out. Guess she ain't one of them moves. She don't come out for three days. What? And now you be looking it up, social media, depression, number one. You be, you be analyzing your own parents. Yeah. And kids trying to make judgment calls is not very successful. No. But you can't tell them that. And then it's not till your, 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 your old years, past adolescence, 25 and up, do you start really processing how wrong you were about your parents. It ain't till 25 and up you start realizing, you know what, that could have been me. You start recognizing, I do have that tendency. And at 25 and up, you start getting scared. Oh, no, I'm about to turn into my... See, there you go. There you go. And the fear starts getting you all discombobulated. On other hands, we didn't even, some of us didn't have actual family that we grew up with, not in the traditional sense. And so there's a growing fantasy that has never changed about what family would be like. So you would look at other families and hope that you could have something like them, but what you think they have is completely fanatical, like you have over-exaggerated everything and you over exaggerate what it would be like and you over exaggerate where your life would be and the problem with that is very few people ever tell you that you over exaggerated so this means your entire life you feel like even what God gave you is never enough in comparison to what you thought it would be like your entire life That's good. yeah yeah I'll be in the house a little bit oh, yeah. a little bit a little bit in my line of work I run into people that have had trauma at a young age, some quick, some long and extensive. And at the end of the day, because I know their story, I give certain allowances, compassion, and empathy for the ways in which they respond to certain things. But their brethren in the church don't give a darn about that. 
They don't understand their story. They don't want to give that type of empathy. They feel like they got their own story. And thus, since I got my own pain, you need to muscle up and quit acting like that. No matter how much pain you have, you become very judgmental because you have a story that somebody else should be able to respond appropriately. Y'all y'all don't even like that, do you? You don't even, you don't even like that. And then when I get hit with pastor, you so soft on them. And I'd be like, but I know their story. And the level of veracity I have with each member is according by the spirit I pray to their story. Some people, you ain't never let me get a chance with that. And you shouldn't, Gabrielle, because you didn't have no traumatic story and you need to get your act together. <laughs> Just because I ain't had no trauma don't mean I don't need attention. You don't need attention. You're fine. I see you. <laughs> nah, I'm, I'm stressed, Pastor, because the people that have been injured in their lives, they're the ones that get all the attention. And just because I had a great life, Oh, this is the stuff she told me to my face. I said, Gabby, get out of my car. <laughs> it's private. Oh, now that's private. <laughs> I said, Gabby, you're blessed. And you don't have to be in pain in order to be seen. Amen? Amen. 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 So when a child faces, oh, let me give you my source. I'm doing a lot from uh, Donna uh, Nakazawa. Um, Charles Spurgeon, um, and I think that's about it. When a young child faces emotional adversity or stressors, cells in the brain release a hormone called cortisol that actually shrinks the size of the brain's hippocampus, altering his or her ability to process emotion and manage stress. In my line of work, I run into people and I call them crazy. I say, oh my God, you're crazy. Amen. Now my entire church is crazy. Amen. Please recognize there's not one sane individual in here and if you think you are sane, then you are the craziest of them all. Everyone is crazy. And I know you're thinking, but I haven't displayed any of my crazy to you, Pastor, so technically, in your eyes, I'm not crazy. You ain't got to display your craziness to me. I can see how your craziness just seeps out of you all willy-nilly like crazy, right? In this house, you can be crazy as long as you admit your craziness. That, that's a prerequisite. People get it twisted. They were like, I'm, I'm not crazy like that. I say, when I tell you this, how you crazy, you better admit to that. You, you, hello, you, yeah, I'm, come around. If not, you out the door. And many a crazy folk did not want to admit when they were challenged and I pulled that card that this is the level of crazy you got going on. They could not handle it and they had to leave. Amen. Right? Maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? If I'm wrong, then God don't want you here. <laughs> <laughs> it's that simple. If I'm right, you're too rebellious, and you're not ready for any help. Either way, you still got to go. Does that make sense? Amen. One of the joys is when I pull somebody's crazy card, and, you know, I call crazy things like deception, lies, sin. Hello? Hello. What, what did you not used to call it? Finesse. <laughs> it ain't quite a lie, but it ain't quite true the way you said it. Those kind of things. When, when people start acting crazy, I, I, at some point, I'm going to pull the card. 
But most times I don't pull it until we have a relationship. Unless you're about to hurt somebody, I don't pull your, your crazy car until I feel like we've got a solid enough relationship that I could tell you, you're crazy. Or this is demonic. Or this is uh, poor character, bad integrity. Because these things hurt, and it's very ineffective to hurt people that you want to help without relationship. Amen. So early when people come in, they get away with everything. And the people, you guys that are here, be looking at them like, why they get away with stuff? You would have slammed me. I would, and I say, shut up. They're new. Okay, pastor, but they ain't that new. Shut up. They're new. Each person has a story. The problem with childhood stressors is that the hormone that is released is cortisol. So before the kid's brain is even fully developed, it already starts to shrink. You, you have a reduction of uh, your hippocampus, which helps you to regulate emotion, to handle stressors. That part of your brain is now not at its greatest potential. And unless something is done, it won't ever be. That's why some people stress out about basic life stuff. And others would be like, oh, my God, that's so petty. That's so simple. Just do this, do that. And they're like, even if I did it, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And then some men, I ain't stressing out. I mean, I am stressing, man. I'm just going through, man, bump this. And you ain't really crying about nothing per se, but you certainly in that bed, man, bump this. Got the same drawers on you had for three days, and I ain't even going nowhere, you know. <laughs> you know, cussing folk out, road rage, and hit a number 10. What are you doing? Right? This idea that now the part of us that can regulate stressors and manage our moods and emotion is now damaged. So what we need in order to conquer the trauma is the very thing that was injured. In order to conquer trauma, you do have to have a lot of mood regulation. Right? You do have to have the ability to reduce stress or triggers. Yes? But that part of the brain is already jacked up from the trauma. And now other people are looking at you like, oh my God, you be like, I know, sometimes I recognize I'm crazy. I say, don't be crazy, don't be crazy, don't be crazy. And then, don't do the thing, don't do the thing, don't do the thing. And then, I did the thing. Childhood trauma has a lot to do with that. It takes the hormones in your brain and it reduces your, your hippocampus size. It reduces your gray matter, the part you need to actually think about stuff. And it destroys neurons. Yes? Right, so when it comes to uh, immediate and, um, un not unexpected, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, unexpected. When it comes to unexpected trauma, your brain has cells called microglia. Microglia, did I get it right? Uh-huh, gila, glia, microglia cells. And they are, these cells are very tiny and they went overlooked for a long period of time, but scientists now have equipment that you can get to that size. And these cells are so small, but the purpose of these cells is that they always assess the state of the brain. 
And what most um, neurologists thought is that they're like the trash department of the brain. We don't need this, we'll take it out. We don't need this, we'll take it out. And it just kind of, these cells just go in and start cleaning up whatever it doesn't like. Now they make up about 10% of the brain cells and are considered non-neuronal, which means they don't make uh, neurons, okay? They're not in that neuron family, but they do help or aid the neurons and other cells in your body. Uh, they hate unpredictable stress, all right? It gets them all worked up. And when they're really worked up, they produce neurochemicals that cause brain inflammation. I know, your brain swells. Now you got the big head, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah. Ah, that's why your head's so big, no. These, <laughs> these cells cause inflammation in the brain and the brain does not do well with inflammation. Not only that, but the high levels of hormones, the high levels of stress that are calling this microglia to kind of go crazy and spaz out is also killing and destroying the neurons in your brain. So for me, when Mother Hudson passed, one of the things that immediately happened is that all of my hormone levels dropped. Like any kind of dopamine, any kind of thing that was serotonin that helps to regulate mood, everything dropped, the bottom dropped out like never before. And my job, has high levels of stress, which produces cortisol. So now I don't have the hormones that I need, right? And I have an influx of stress that is consistent and persistent. So even if my brain could repair, the cortisol is not letting it repair at the rate that it should. And so thus I have chronic depression and I'm on medication. Does that make sense? Neurons are the things that take in the hormones. So if you got happy for something was nice, then you got dopamine and it takes in the hormones. So chronic depression says that there have, this, it's not a feeling. It is a neurological deficiency in that the neurons that you used to have, since you had no hormones pumping in for that traumatic event, they died. It's like, you don't use us, you lose us. Yeah. And so now when you do have a happy event and your body sends off the hormones like dopamine, or serotonin, you're like, yay, and then it's gone. Gone instantly. Primarily because there are not enough neurons taking that feeling in, right? Taking that hormone in and producing more, more goodness, right? More good thoughts, more good everything. It's just gone, right? And those neurons, once they're dead, they're dead. You gotta, you gotta wait for them to regrow, yes? But in states of chronic depression, the cortisol levels are too high, yes? to allow those neurons to grow. Amen? Amen. How you feeling? All right. Good. The idea <laughs> that these uh, microglia cells, um, and they produce these neurochemicals that cause brain inflammation, these, these cells, these microglia cells, they're non-neuronal, which means they don't really affect the neurons, but they affect it at a genetic level. They affect your DNA. So, your DNA is like that spiral, right? But that spiral is also wound up over something else. I can't remember the name of it, but it's wound up over that, okay? So microglia adds a marker to stop it from winding up over a spool, like a thread, right? All right? So you gotta compact DNA, cause there's a lot of it. So it twists this way, and then it wraps over like a spool of thread, yeah? And the microglia adds a marker and it stops it from wrapping up. Does that make sense? 
So now there's a part of your DNA moving forward that won't actually be used in that manner because the marker stopped it at a place where it's not usable. Does that make sense? <laughs> Yay. This is a form of epigenics. I know. We did a study years ago on epigenics, and we, you know, hypothesized that epigenics is how the giants came about, that there are certain traits in your DNA that are inactive until a certain stimuli or environmental uh, factor is placed there, and then that gene becomes active, right. yes? So in this case, this form of epigenics as it relates to stress puts a mark in your DNA and won't let that particular spot of your DNA actually be used. This is why your autoimmune diseases come up <clears throat> and all those other factors because there's a part of your DNA that's been tampered and won't let it actually be used to create the cells that you need, right? DNA that makes the cells. You need the cells. Yes? Right. All right. Cool. How you feeling? Good. <coughs> now, research on perceived stress, all right, tells us it isn't, it isn't the stressful experience that causes you the harm. It's your reaction to the feeling of stress that's most harmful. Research on pers perceived stress <laughs> tells us it isn't the stressful experience that causes you harm. It's your reaction to that feeling of stress that's most harmful. In other words, the fact that you have, don't have any money isn't the thing that is causing you pain and damage. The thing that is causing you pain and damage is the feeling that comes with not having money and how you perceive that is the thing that actually causes you harm. Make sense? Oh, uh, uh, sicknesses, diseases, illnesses. In some cases, uh, you cannot have high stress levels because they work against your healing process. So the perception that you can conquer cancer, the perception that you can overcome it is a very integral factor in someone's healing and recovery. Yeah? McGonagall, I don't know her name, Kelly, um, a Stanford psychologist has revealed a fascinating relationship between perception and stress, illness, and resilience. She took 30,000 adults for eight years and monitor their lives, all right? At the end of every year, they would only ask them two questions. One, how much stress have you experienced in the last year? And two, do you believe that stress is harmful for your health? The only two questions they asked. At the end of every year, for eight years, 30,000 people. How much stress did you have this year? And do you believe that that stress is harmful to your physical health? Yes? All righty. <laughs> a lot of stress, okay, the people that said I had a lot of stress this year, was 43%, all right? 43% of the people that said I have a lot of stress and I believe, that's not right, it's not 43%. A large portion of those that said I have a lot of stress and I believe that that stress is harmful to my body were 43% more likely to die. Oh, Lord. 
43, 43% more likely to die because they had a lot of stress and they believed that the stress was harmful to their health. Now, on the other side, people that experience a lot of stress but did not view it as harmful were no more likely to die than the ones without stress. They both had a lot of stress. One believed that it's harmful to my health and they were 43% more likely to die, right? The other group said I had a lot of stress, but I don't believe it's harmful to my health. And they lived like they had no stress. Wow. You need to let that sink in. And more, most importantly, it's not just that they, <laughs> in fact, they had a lower risk of dying, the lowest risk of dying than anyone else, including those with a little stress. So even those who said, I didn't hardly have any stress, the people that had a lot of stress but didn't believe it was harmful still had a lower risk than the people that had no stress. It's about perception. It's about perception. And you don't want to believe it because your flesh has gotten so used to feeling free in your emotions. Yeah. Intense emotions allow your flesh, your physical body, to feel free enough to do whatever it wants to do. That's why alcohol releases or reduces your inhibitions. It's a chemical, right? So it says, hey, we can do whatever we want. We can be as angry as we want. We could shoot somebody. We could flip over a table. All of these things that happen in your mental space in intense emotions are there because your flesh now has freedom. So it is your perception of the stressor that grants your, your soul and your body to do things it would not normally do. To respond in ways that don't even make no sense. Many people are in prison. I just didn't think it would go that far. I just didn't think it would go that far. You can retrace your steps all you want, and all you're left with is if I would have just made one small decision, just one change. One decision wrecked my life. One choice. One, one, one decision. Right? But that decision could have been clearly seen by anyone, right, that really had the proper perception of the stressor in that moment. How you feeling? Good? <clears throat> so the beauty of epigenics, and there's a beauty to it, is that it is reversible. It's reversible. We're going to look scientifically at some ways that it's reversible, but first, let's establish the idea that the Bible already said it was reversible. Go to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I'm going to show you scientifically with some neuro neurological studies, all right, some ways to help reverse it. But I just want you to know that your father in heaven already designed a way for it to be reversible. That whatever stressor you encountered in your life, he has equipped human beings with the propensity and ability 
to actually stop their brain from being conformed to what happened to them. Are you there, Romans chapter 12? I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is trying to explain to the brethren, look, you cannot allow these external situations of persecution and, and, and martyrdom, you know, and people stealing your property and taking your house and you cannot allow that pressure to conform you. You have to let those things renew your mind. What I love about this verse is Paul is saying, don't be transformed, all right? Don't be conformed, I'm sorry. Don't be conformed to what the world does. And the world does a lot, yeah. all right? And it's not just means secular. It means everything that's external around you is constantly adding pressure. He says you have to be transformed and your mind has to be renewed. What I love about this latter verse at the end, it says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Most times I've read this, that by testing, that means that by uh, examining the situations in my life, I could see whether they're good, perfect, or acceptable, the will of God. I don't think that's how that verse intended it to go. Because my ability to test certain situations in my life sucks. But rather... According to the neurologist, the, the experiment, could it be that you should allow testing, trials in your life to help you discern in the future what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God? Because you remember in the study, those that had a lot of stress but did not feel that that stress was harmful, right? This means they had a lot of tests. They had a lot of trials and a lot of tribulations, but they did not believe that it was harmful to their health or were more likely to live than anybody else, even the people with less stressors. So maybe it is those that have challenges, those that have problems, those that have had a rough start, a difficult past, a traumatic event. Maybe it's possible that those individuals were always intended by God to live long and prosperous lives. Always, always, always. But it's your perception of your stressor. Because when you start recognizing that this thing is not here to harm me, y'all don't want to help me preach today, that he's not, God is not here to harm me. He's not some big giant up there going bad, good, good, bad. It's not about trying to harm me. Everything that is happening is happening according to his will. And it's not to harm me. It's for my good. That perception will then remove the fear out of your life so you can properly discern when something is the will of God or not, even when it's painful. The problem with most people is that they don't like the painful parts. Yeah, most people don't like the painful parts. But not having a healthy relationship with pain is to your detriment. In the Old Testament, 
they talked about loving the law all the time. Yeah. You know, I'm going to get to that in another point. But I couldn't understand why the psalmist would write, I, the lo- I love the law, and I, I meditate on your law daily, and it is joy to me. Because in my mind, I'm like, how is law <laughs> joyful? <Right. laughs> they said, well, maybe it's the whole scope of the stories. Eh. No, I, I think he meant law, and I couldn't really get with that, like just reading a whole bunch of thou shalt nots, like, yay. It was like, well, ultimately it teaches you God. Did it, did it teach them God? Because they really messed up for until the New Testament, yeah. right? But oh, it's, that's the idea. But what I found is the law contains promises and punishments. And all of us love the law to read the promises, but only those with appropriate character could enjoy reading the punishment. Hello? Yeah, that punishment is something else. So the testing of your life was presented so that you could have a more abundant life as you changed your perception, right? Because those with no stress lived less than those with stress that believed it was not there to harm them. And they lived the longest. He knew we needed muscles. He knew we needed strength. So could it be that the roughness of your childhood was designed by God to make you strong? And wherever his life is taking you. And I assure you, the harder it was, the further he wants to take your life. That's, that's, that's the gamut. Our families play a crucial role in shaping our values and identity. They can help us become more confident, compassionate, and curious, or they can make us more insecure, selfish, and closed-minded. The good news is that we have some control over how we let our families influence us. We can choose to accept or reject guidance, nurture or neglect our relationships with our siblings, honor or modify our traditions. We can also choose to seek out other sources of values and identity, such as friends, mentors, role models, and churches. What I love about the father is the idea of justification is a legal concept. You know, we're saved through justification that it, the blood of Christ says that we did, that he loves us as if we never sinned, all right? And it's a legal term, all right? When it comes to the New Testament, you often hear um, Christ introduce the gospel and now salvation in a relational term, excuse me, using the word father. So justification rests primarily on a legal image, all right, to reveal the freedom that comes with an undeserved acquittal. Uh, but adoption focuses our attention on a relational image and points us to the joy and assurance that comes from receiving a father who loves us and a family whom we can enjoy our new freedom in Christ. One of the things I love about, I think the nicest thing somebody ever told me, I think it was Sheena uh, the other day because you know, some people, when mommy passed, they, you know, they've been with me in that rough time, and I enjoy their presence on those difficult days because they're the only ones that really understand it, you know? Um, and 
we were at the house on Thanksgiving, and I already said I wasn't going to cook Thanksgiving dinner. I'm not doing a Thanksgiving thing. We're going to do the outreach. I'm going to come home, and that's about it. You know, maybe decorate for Christmas because I'm going to try to host Christmas dinner for the family. <sighs> Nevertheless, um, she had a million places she could have gone, and um, nice places, like Gabby's parents' house. They have a catered spread, and it is, and they are fun people, and they're warm, and they're accepting, and the food is amazing. Um, if I wasn't such a Debbie Downer, I'd probably be over there myself. <laughs> but people had an, uh, all kinds of places they could go, and something she told me, she said, but and I think Janiah uh, 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 Jenga that she said, but this feels like home, and that just. I realized that's all I ever wanted. The whole concept of this church in my heart and mind and by the spirit of the Lord is that it feels like home and that you have brothers and sisters around you, not just the father, not just your mom and the Lord, but also your siblings and it feels like home. When they get start fighting, I'm like, you might as well stop. Y'all gonna end up being friends again tomorrow. Where are you gonna go? Nowhere. So stop building this up. Take it down, because that's where it's going to go anyway. <laughs> Y'all ain't going to do nothing. Your sisters. You ain't going to do nothing. Your brothers. Where you going to go? Nowhere. This your house. And when you finally recognize that this is the family that God chose for you, I mean, think about it. How perfect is this house for you specifically? For you specifically. And everyone's experience at this church is uniquely different, and I know that. But it fits you. Right? It fits you. It's exactly what God had intended. And so when people tell me that, it just warms my heart. It's the best. I said that's the best compliment I ever had in my whole life. Because I enjoyed family. When we used to, when Mother passed, Minister Hudson would cook us dinner. We used to have brunch at dad's house the first year and every Sunday he would cook and every Sunday we would go to his house and without mommy and we would cry and we would eat, but we needed, we went to the pool every Sunday. We, we needed our church family. And it was a time when they could really be there for us as much as we tried to be there for them. So there's a unique bond in that group. Um, so when she says, no, but this feels like home and I'm like, but that other stuff is so much nicer. And it just warmed my heart. That is this house. The church, the body of Christ, is what you're adopted into. Yeah. The local church is your household. These are your brothers and sisters. As soon as you settle into you ain't going nowhere, you'd have a better time. <laughs> but it's the idea that at any moment you could leave, and you need that way of escape because of your childhood is the reason why you can't settle. Because families have one thing in common. Ain't nobody going nowhere. That's it. One thing I knew about my parents, ain't none of them going nowhere. My dad came home every night, no matter how argumentative that season was. They never had opposite rooms, maybe opposite beds. Don't put your feet on me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but he was there every night. He would storm off, mommy would storm off and run around for a day and then come back home. And that was just, where else is he gonna go? 
And that was the concept. Where else am I going to go? This is my home. This is the place where they accept me, good, bad, ugly, all of it, and they ain't gonna tell me I gotta go unless I keep disrespecting the idea of family. That's it. When you settle into that, you'll have a better experience. You won't feel so isolated, isolated or alone or misunderstood or not accepted. And a lot of you live feeling like you're so misunderstood. And it's only because you have not settled. Do you know how many times I have to tell somebody, I know, I've seen it before. I know, I've seen it before. Oh, no, you ain't seen nothing like this, Pastor. My, oh, you ain't seen this, okay? You ain't seen my life like this. You ain't seen the kind of crazy I go through. And you tell me the whole story, and I'll be like, yeah, seen that before. I'm now at the stage of pastoring where y'all ain't got nothing new. <laughs> ain't no new crazy. I done ran through all the types of crazy, and now it's just repetitive crazy. Which is good, because I know how to handle it. You know, it's easy. Boom, boom, boom. Three steps on this, do that, check that. You know, it's a recipe now. It's great. But it's because you keep feeling like you're going to have to leave, or you're going to have to go, is why you don't settle, and we can't get to know you and you can't get to know us, and we can't accept you for who you really are. It took years for me to put in Sheena and Janiah and anybody else that felt the same way, the idea that no matter how horrible of people they were, I was not going to throw them away. Amen. Took years. 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 Everybody was like, oh, that's a lost cause. Shut up. Nobody's a lost cause. That's my baby, right? Unless they tell me, I don't want to be around you no more, and that's it. But they ain't saying that. What you doing? <laughs> Even when Janiah wasn't here, I called her practically every day, or she called me. We still talk. We still try to find ways to hang out, to minister one to another through what she was going through, because that's my baby. Hello? All right? You ain't got to go nowhere unless you want to, right? And until you officially say, I don't want to be here, we will keep your plate at your seat until you show back up. Amen. That's the way it works. I would go off to college. My room was still the same. Until one day it wasn't. Mommy decided to change it. Daddy was like, don't do it. <laughs> what if she need to come back? Mommy was like, she ain't coming back. She grown. She might come back. <laughs> no, I ain't went back. <laughs> Trying to get daddy to come stay with me. <laughs> uh, okay, yes? So moving in the New Testament, it's familial. It's about adoption. It's about Christ bringing you into the Father's house. John 1 and 11 says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He said to everyone that believes, you're born anew into his household. You're brought in into his household by his will. To everyone believe that believes by his will. It's not because your mom and your daddy did to do. It's not because they got drunk one night. 
It's not because they thought it was going to work and it didn't. You were brought here because the father willed that you be a part of his family. He knew your family sucked. Like the children of Israel, he knew you had a Egypt, but he also knew he had a plan to bring you out and into your new family. Don't try to act hard. Y'all know y'all need, you need this. You need a better family. And y'all be trying to tell me, some people flat out say, my family sucks. Other people say, they don't really, I mean, I love them. I mean, you know, that's a good sign. You're loyal to your family. You know, I love them, but, uh, you know, but. I'm like, you don't have to say nothing else. This is your new family. Two things can be true. Yes, that's your family by blood. And this is your family by the will of God. By the will of God, which is a whole lot stronger. Yeah? Amen? Woo-wee. John 8, 42 says, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus says, why can't you see who I am? Why can't you understand it? You keep saying, I don't understand, I don't understand. You do understand, you can't bear it. I love that statement, because I deal with that all the time. It's not that you don't understand, it's that what you would have to feel once you acknowledge that you understand, you don't want to bear that. If I understand this to be true, then I'm a liar. If I understand this to be true, then I was lustful. If I understand this to be true, then I was demonic. If I understand this to be true, then Satan used me. If I understand this to be true, then I was, I was deceptive. I was this. If I, if I understand it, and the Lord for who he is and what his Bible, his word says, then I am a horrible individual. And sometimes we cannot bear to think about that. But the joy of the kingdom of God is when the word brings you face to face with who you are. He already placed you in a family that when you cannot bear the idea of who you really are, there's other people in here that will help and bear your burdens. He already put you somewhere where you're accepted when you finally recognize what a terrible individual you are. Versus you realize that now you're out here in the cold. In the dark by yourself trying to figure it out turn into Instagram you know talks and conversations and, and influencers to get help and understanding your mental state this house teaches more about your mental state than anything on that internet backed by science and the Word of God yeah. it's good for your soul yeah, they like mental health yes mental health with Jesus mental health with the Lord who had it on lock from the beginning. Everybody else is just trying to duplicate what he already established. Y'all 
be looking at, and it's, it, that's the running theme, is, oh, yeah, you need a church, but you also need a therapist. I'm for counseling. I am. I go to my therapist since mommy passed every two weeks, right? I go. I'm, I'm with that. Even before my mom passed, I went to him every year for a checkup. <laughs> Make sure I ain't crazy, because my members wouldn't tell me. <laughs> we always going the crazy route. Nope. Somebody, check me. But the connotation in this is that the church of God and the house of God is never enough. That's the implication, that you could come to your father's house and need something, and it's never enough, and he doesn't supply what you need. This is why I counsel, because I really don't enjoy counseling. Apparently, I'm good at it, but it's not my most favorite thing. I'd much rather be outside playing golf or watching a movie with some popcorn. Can we counsel while we watch this movie? <laughs> you watch the movie, then we talk about it afterwards. <laughs> Right? Um, I got a lot of otter tendencies. Uh, you knew it, girl. Right? But counseling, the connotation now is that the church can't handle. And a lot of my members choose to take counseling from me because I know their lives better than trying to reestablish a new relationship with a therapist. Yeah. And a lot of people come to me because you have to pay the therapist. My counseling is free. All right, that means you get $150 worth of service for one hour for free. Oh, Pastor, here go $20, what? Thank you. Do you see the stuff I'm spitting out at you that I already read years ago? Yeah, I had to go get old books. Right, come on, $20. <laughs> First John 3, 7 says, little children, let no one deceive you. Little children, look at this. It's all familial, brothers, brothers, little children, father, father. Let no one deceive you. Who, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So that's the part. That's the part we don't like. We don't like that part. Because we feel like as long as I believe in Jesus, I'm not of the devil. That's not what the Bible say. The Bible say if you practice sin, you're of the devil. What does practice mean? It means you keep doing it until you get better and better at it. Uh, you, know, you, know, you know how many milligrams, how many, how much CBD, how many, you know, the positions and all the ways to do things. You done, you done got this down to a science, huh? You know how many drinks you could take before. You know what kind of medicine does what. I mean, you, you have gotten this down to, oh, you want me to look up? Okay. And in some cases, you pride yourself on the idea that you're so good at something that is actually sinful. The word of God says, little children, don't be deceived. Anybody practicing sin is of the devil. We, some of my members was of the devil. You then gonna get that devil cast out, <laughs> or you gonna get cast out? And nobody likes to hear that the devil used them. 
You think it's the unsaved person. It's you. You fooling around with the unsaved person's hand. That's why it is. That's why I like that because they the devil. No, they ain't the devil. Between you and that unsaved person, Satan gets more use out of you in the body of Christ than he does out of that unsaved person. Because now people know you go to church. People know you're a Christian. People know you believe in Jesus. And all they see is that the power of God is not even able to keep you from being lonely, keep you from being mad, keep you from being bitter, keep you from being frustrated, keep you from being aggravated. So now believing in Jesus is just like a concept. It doesn't really transform who you are. And people stay in the house, not transform. I don't even know why you resist it. Some of you literally resist being changed or transformed, and you need it the most. You don't even like yourself. You don't like who you're becoming, and you don't know what you should be. This is a perfect opportunity in the family of God for your father and the Lord, your father, the Lord God Almighty, and your mother and the Lord to lay hands on you and tell you who you are. Because you're trying to figure it out was a disaster. Amen. And when we tell you, take joy in that. My mom and dad told me what I was smart, <laughs> kind. And that's what I became. They spoke it right over my life. And I enjoyed growing into what they enjoyed about me. I try to show you what I enjoy about you. And you're just constantly trying to deflect that anybody could enjoy that about you. Rather than accepting it, because I'm not lying, and letting that transform you. Because like real children, whatever you're good at, you want to keep doing that's how we're designed. But you resist being changed. One, because you're afraid. And two, because you're of the devil and you have your own selfish desires. It says, but whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Okay, if you're of the devil, then you're a work of the devil. Uh-huh. It's not just the deeds. It's his actual offspring. The Son of God came to destroy the offspring of Satan. Just in case you wanted to know, thinking all your practicing of sin is harmless, it's just something I know I got to get right eventually. <laughs> No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For or because God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. One of the joys about my babies when they do fall into sin is I can flat out tell them when I know who they are. You ain't going to be able to keep doing that. And they call me, I keep, I keep slipping up. I keep slipping up, Pastor. I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe you aren't. But from what I remember, you very much so love the Lord. So all this is, is conflict. What you don't like 
is the guilt and the conflict you feel between loving the Lord and your own desires. And you can't stand that. And since you can't get rid of your desires, you rather get rid of God. And that is stupid. You keep doing that, he's going to let you go. You can't keep choosing you over him and expect to get into heaven when that was a sin that got us all kicked out of the garden in the first place. Choosing ourselves over him. You can't keep doing that. So in this house, somebody has to remind you, baby, you saved. Am I? Oh, yeah, I remember. You had the spirit of the Lord really in you. I felt it. Really? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now I don't know what you're doing now. <laughs> the idea here is that since God put his seed in you, you're never going to feel comfortable doing what everybody else is doing. Yeah. And so many people get stuck doing it, and the conflict is so bad that they rather that the Lord would just turn them over because they can't handle how much pain they feel with disappointing God. And people have come to me over and over and over again, I just feel so bad when I disappoint them. I say, good. No, I feel real bad. I say, good. Like, I want to kill myself bad. I say, good, don't kill yourself because now you got two wrongs and some, somehow you ain't going to go to heaven. <laughs> right? I just feel so bad. I feel so good. When am I going to be delivered? When you get tired of feeling bad. When you get sick and tired of being what? Sick and tired. Until the pain of that sin is greater than your desire to sin, you will keep on sinning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You want a trick? You want a, the, the roadmap for deliverance? There it is. There it is. It can happen at an altar because that person is going through all the pain and is having a response to the Spirit of God that says, I don't want none of this pain anymore. But sometimes it doesn't happen that way. It happens from you falling on your face and on your tail over and over and over again, having to keep coming to this altar, crying and snotting and going back and doing the same thing and coming back, crying and snotting and going back and doing the same thing, coming back, crying and snotting and going back and doing the same thing. Eventually, if you have the seed of God in you, you're going to get tired of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you're going to say, I don't want no more to do with this. And everything about it just turns your stomach into knots. Because to you now, the sin that you enjoyed has become a nauseating pain. Yeah. And it should be. Amen? Amen? Come on and bless the name of the Lord. Woo. Now, earlier in the message, I said that epigenics can be reversed. I'm going to give you five of the ways you can reverse any childhood trauma or abuse that you feel has epigenixed you. The five I've selected are the five that neurologists and psychologists and psychiatrists agree with and the ones that are clearly seen within the Bible. When you're ready, say amen. amen. You got your notes ready? All right. Uh, the first, for healing of the brain, and creating new neurological connections, increasing the gray matter, and reducing brain inflammation. That's what we're doing. Okay? We want your brain and your hormones to work with you, not against you. Yes? Amen. So for healing the brain 
and creating new neurological connections. The neurons is what takes the hormones in that you need. Increasing gray matter, all right, and reducing the inflammation, increasing the size of your hippocampus where you have better, you're better able to adjust your mood and handle stressors. There are five major ways that you could help to reverse this. Are we on the same page? Yeah. Good. Number one, the one and the best on both sides, both biblically and psychiatrically. There's one that is the best, even neurologically studies they've examined the brain, is meditation. Meditation. <clears throat> the best method for repairing the brain, and when they scan individuals who faced adversity in their childhood, often show a loss of interconnectivity in the areas that are critical to creating relationships, activating a sense of calm in the face of stress, and uh, reducing inflammation response. So what they're saying is, when they take brain scans of people that have had tra uh, trauma, these are all the things that they notice that are not good. They have a bad time with interconnectivity of relationships. How multiple relationships work together. And some of you say, I got some good relationships. No, you don't. Because you know you keep backstabbing one or the other at any given point. Or in order to like this friend, you got to not like that friend. In order, you know what I mean? And you keep playing the sides. That's the inconnectivity, interconnectivity of your relationships is poor. You, you, can't, you can't just rock with all of them equally. Somebody has to be a disdain in order for you to feel comfortable with that. That's, that's not how that's supposed to go. And it happens in the house, but it's also because of childhood trauma. You need to repair the ability to have interconnecting relationships. Amen? Uh, areas critical to the brain and activating a sense of calm, activating a sense of calm in stress. That means you feel the stress, right? But you are now turning on your ability to be calm. I do really well at this, apparently. Apparently. As Elijah said to me, Pastor, you're fearless. Uh, <laughs> I climbed on top of the roof the other day, and, and it was, hmm? Who, me? Hmm? Me and Shamar and Elijah, we, we, gotta, we climbed to the tippity top of the roof. Hey, Dad, just look away. <laughs> they said it was really high, and I wanted to see how high. Sorry, Stefan. Everybody look away, okay? Everybody look away. Well, we climbed to the top, not the first level, to tippity top, and it was so frightening. I was like, ooh, this crazy. We ain't coming up here no more. And then I got down, freakishly high. But I can activate a sense of calm under stress. Amen? And assess that no one is putting lights on the top of this house. Because <laughs> tomorrow, I can do it, cuz, uh-uh. Elijah says it's too high, and he ain't afraid of heights. Let me go check this out. Oh, no, ain't nobody coming up here. Nope, 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 not going down. I don't want no Christmas lights that bad. Amen? We can activate a sense of calm, and we can downshift the inflammation response, the headaches, the pain in the body, the aches in the joints. All of that is an inflammatory response to stress, breakouts, 
eating habits, constipation or diarrhea, ulcers, hair loss, right? All of these things are response, are response to stressors. Individuals that practice mindful meditation and um, uh, individuals that pra practice mind mindful meditation during a one day for eight hours uh, reduced their response to stress and their levels of inflammatory hormones. They were able to recover faster from stress and they were less reactive to stress. They, uh, they still pumped out inflammatory hormones such as cortisol when stressed, but their cortisol level went down more quickly once the stressor had paused. The most of your issue is that when something that stresses you out happens, you can't let it go. And that's what's killing you. If you're around me for a day, I get all kinds of stressors. I get them back to back to back to back. And I'm like, oh, no, no, you don't. No, 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 no. All right, praise the Lord. All right, what are we going to do next, y'all? You would think I was crazy because I'll be fully into this conversation with heat and passion and then be like perfectly happy and sane and calm. It's, you would think it's something wrong, but once I get done with this conversation and my salutations of goodbye, I am done with this conversation. It cannot go any further into the rest of my day. Once I get done talking about it, calling Minister Hudson, tell him how I feel, you know, pouring it all out. Once I get done with that, I am done with it. The purpose of me talking about it is to examine my own feelings, but I also know it's because I'm not doing anything with this after that. Y'all keep talking about it, but don't recognize the reason you're talking about it so you can let it go, not so you can keep it going. You have to go in with intention in your conversation. I want to say how I feel about this you know, to a friend or a loved one, knowing that I'm doing this so that I don't have to keep carrying it around. It says when I get done expressing how I feel, it is okay for me to let that go. You, 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 look up. When I get done expressing how I feel, it is perfectly okay for me to let it go. The problem is you don't feel like it's okay to let it go, but it's perfectly acceptable. No one is telling you, you better feel bad for the rest of the day. And once I realize that nobody's got a gun in my head making me feel bad, I'm just choosing to feel bad, then I'm choosing not after this conversation. Y'all need that because some of y'all suck at letting stuff go. You do. When you get done, I'm done. I'm ex I express my feelings. The problem you can't let it go is because you're too manipulative. You like control too much. You can't let it go because you need your words to change the other person. Somehow, even if you're talking to the person, you want to make sure that somebody else also sees that person the same way you see that person. Right? You can't let it go because you're too controlling. When you recognize that there are not any words you could say to anybody 
without the spirit of the Lord that will change them. You then know, and you probably don't have it because you're not called to be their pastor. So no matter, no matter how many times you tell them what you don't like, it's not going to stop them from doing it. And it doesn't mean they don't love you. It means they got their own set of issues that conflict with what you prefer. But y'all judge whether somebody loves you based off of how many times they hurt you. And sometimes you, if you really love them, then you know their story and you adjust and find ways to accommodate the person you love. Because that's all relationship is. Is I deem you worthy of adjusting certain aspects that conflict with my life in order to love you. And I feel like you do the same for me. But trying to find somebody that ain't going to hurt your feelings is not possible. And trying to communicate. Oh, my God, y'all talk so much. Why you talk so much? You are not going to be able to convince nobody of nothing, not to the point that change is going to happen because who are you? But you have this controlling tendency to keep changing the narrative or control the narrative, and you are not, you are anybody's pastor or parent, which means you don't have to say nothing. Somebody could completely offend you, do you wrong, and you don't need to say anything. You just want to say something. No, I need to tell them so it won't keep happening. It will still keep happening. I need to tell them so I won't be looking like a fool. You already look like a fool. All you're doing is staying connected to that problem. All you're doing is keeping your stressors up, damaging your brain, causing yourself to look crazier. Now you're going to end up becoming just like them. Shorten your life. Shorten your life. You cannot make somebody feel what you feel. You have to hope they do, and that's great, or be okay with them not. Because the purpose of that conversation was for you to let it go. The purpose of the conversation is for me to do what? The purpose of this conversation is for me to do what? Let it go. Let it go. You say, I'm sorry, they say, I'm sorry. People do me bad all the time. They be like, I'm sorry. Other people be like, that ain't enough. I be like, what else they gonna do? Admit their fault, say they're sorry. Yeah. There is nothing else they could do. Yeah. They can make up for it. How? You can't fix it, you can only redo something else. But it will never be back at its original state because it was broken, you had to fix it. You tampered with the warranty, <laughs> right? Since I know all I really want and hope for, and I don't have to have that, is that you understand how I feel, right? And that you apologize for whatever role you played in it, right? And then we can move on. Even if I don't get that, I'm still going to do what? Let it go. I'm still going to let it go. Even if you don't get me. If you don't see it from my perspective. If you walk away still feeling like you was right, I still need to do what? Let it go because you cannot control anybody. You talk so much because you're so manipulative and controlling. So when you get done with the conversation, the purpose of it is I can let it go and move on. Amen. You'll hear on my consultations with you on phones for immediate circumstances, I always draw you down to a very happy conclusion. And then I get off the phone. And we're not going to keep going back in circles to, mm -mm, mm -mm. see how I landed you over here? Happy thoughts. Happy thoughts. Happy thoughts. Conclusion. Goodbye. Click. And I'll say, is there anything else? And you go, oh, that's it? Pretty much. 
I have walked you to where your peace is. If you choose to get riled up again, it's because you want to. It's because you want to. Because I walked you right to where you knew your safe place was. But you like it. You enjoy that turmoil. Because if you ain't fighting yourself, you don't know what to do with yourself. Some of y'all don't even understand peace. Angelina, can I use you as an example? When Angelina first got to this church, she was already on a path of, I need to fix everything about myself. Her and Briera, two of the same. Sorry, I didn't ask you, but okay, okay. I need to fix everything about myself. And for the first couple of months, we had counseling. I counseled her through some stuff that she had in her, in her life. And months after that, she still kept working on herself. And then recently, I said, Angelina, stop. Stop what? Stop trying to fix yourself. Now, every time I say something, you're looking for what you should have done or could have done. You did all that you could do. Let it go. So now when she calls me, I have to say, Angelina, go to work. Go to church. Enjoy your life and come home. That's your days. That's it. Go to work. Go to church. Enjoy your life and go home. And I have to keep reminding her of this because she's always trying to critique where she's not and where she needs to be. And at some point, all of that's in the hands of the Father. And this is a period of time where you get to rest. Amen. You get to rest. We took care of all your problems. We took care of most of your sins, okay? You ain't sinning nothing. You ain't sleeping with nobody. Everything is fine. Rest. Quit looking for something because past trauma has made you feel that you were insufficient all the time. Make sense? In this house, you fine. But I still be doing this. All of us do that, baby. That's human. And some of y'all, I got to keep telling you the stuff you do is human. But I felt jealous for it. But I felt jealous that that's human. That's to be expected. Nuh-uh. But in my heart, I was just angry. That's a reasonable response to that. That's human. That's to be expected. You feel that everything negative because you had trauma is a negative indication of who you are. And it's not true. Amen. When we pray, Matthew 6 says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to the father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Psalms 4 and 4 says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder on your own hearts, on your beds and be silent. Selah. Psalms 19 and 14 says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. <clears throat> mm -hmm. When it comes to meditation, we trigger an underlying mechanism that helps you to regulate and reduce painful feelings. Meditation helps to repopulate the brain with gray matter. There's a stunning health benefit for a very simple practice. You focus on your breath. Let's, let's talk about that. The act of meditation. In Eastern religions, you need to empty your brain. In Christianity, you need to fill your brain. And mindful meditation for Christians. Now, don't begin on these mindful meditation apps. I cannot condone those. I don't know what they be trying to put in your brain as you sleep. All right, be very careful with those things. All right, but when it comes to Christian meditation, some of you desperately need to learn how to meditate. Because number one, this is the best way. 
the best way, neurologically, psychiatrically, and biblically, to reverse your childhood trauma. Amen. Or the effects of it, I should say. Meditate. When you meditate, you need a space and a time. And that's all you have there. You have a space that you meditate in and a time that you like to meditate. You come to my house, I got a space. <laughs> I do. It's got a little topiary, bonsai tree. I got a little spot table for my Bible. And I light a candle or incense. And I always like to smell the air, so I'm by a window. And I kneel, and I got a kneeling bench that makes it easy for me to stay there for a very long time, very comfortably. When mommy first passed, the second year, I really learned meditation. And I realized how important it was for not losing my mind completely. <laughs> and when I meditate, you can find your own way. Let me just give you an example. Is that helpful? Okay. When I meditate, I get you want some things are universal. Okay, I'll take these off. When you meditate, you need a space, okay? Dedicated for just that. Not in your bed. You, you sleep, that's called sleep. All right. You find a space. How many people really want to reverse the effects of childhood trauma? Okay, if that's, your, if that's your thing, and the Lord has said biblically and everything else that this is the best way, then I expect to ask you, how have your meditations been going? You can tell me a true answer. Yes? All right, so you have a space and a place. All right, I have a kneeling bench that kind of keeps me in this position very long, without, and it's comfortable for me. But you want to sit whatever's comfortable. Okay, crisscross applesauce, right? Legs out, all right? But you don't wanna lay down. I'ma lay prostrate, no you ain't. You gonna lay sleep, sleep. You can't be so comfortable, can you guys, if you can't see me, you can stand up. You, you can't be so comfortable where you fall asleep. You have to be very aware of your body when you meditate. And so what I, what I tell people that are starting off in Christian meditation, Okay, biblical meditation is to focus on something that you love about God. And for me, I used thank you. That's all I do. As I sit, you take a deep breath and you exhale. <sighs> While I'm doing that, I'm breathing in and I'm thinking about all the crap that went on that day. And this person gonna tell me, let it. And I didn't even like how that went down. It wasn't supposed to be. And I'm telling myself, when I get done taking these breaths, whatever I didn't let go of needs to be let go before I go to bed. I need to be able to say that's in the Lord's hands or I'm done with that for the day. Do you understand? So you take a deep breath in, you exhale. And um, when it's time for me to really meditate after I do my cleansing breaths, which is important for your brain health, oxygen. Stress reduces your respiratory rate, how much oxygen you take in. So you need to have a point where you're taking in a lot of oxygen to help restore your brain. So you take deep breaths. Okay, and then I, for me, I say thank you. So I might say, thank you, Jesus. And every time I say thank you, I think of something that day to be thankful for. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You'll probably hear me saying this exhortation because I do it all the time. Thank you, Jesus. I think of something else. Thank you, Jesus. I think of something else. Thank you, Jesus. And what I'm doing is I'm changing my perception 
of the stressors that I had throughout the day. Right? I'm, 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 show, I'm, I'm giving time and space for what I felt in my deep breaths. I was angry. I was upset. I was sad. In my deep breaths, I might start crying, right? But when I get to my thank yous, my mindful meditation, then I start looking at all the positives, right? And now I'm in my meditation smiling, right? And then I go to my prayer request. Amen? Amen. 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 Come on and bless the name of the Lord. <clears throat> so you need to know where your arms and bodies is. You need to know where your hands are. Rest them on your lap. You can't be so comfortable that you go to sleep. You have to stay very focused. Yes? You can also, I use uh, uh, gratefulness. You might want to use holiness or his salvation, his deliverance. I don't know. You just find something that you really love about God and you fill your mind with that. All right? Meditation doesn't have to take long. Once you feel good, you're done. <clears throat> you feel better? Good. You're done. That's it. That's the whole shebang. Do I feel better? Yes, you're done. If you don't feel better, stay. Stay and talk to him. Let the Holy Spirit counsel your soul. Yes? Uh, number two, mind, mind sight. Mind sight. In order to reverse the situation, you need mind sight, which is different than mindset. Mind sight says you have an ability to notice your internal mental life and reflect. So introspection, yes? But that's just part of mind sight. All right, you have to have proper introspection. This is what I did wrong. This is what I was feeling. This is where that's going. Some of y'all do introspection so well, but then you stop. And now it's just you, 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 you. And everybody needs to see you, 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 you. Because you've done so much introspection. All right? But it doesn't stop there. After you go through the introspection of identifying your feelings, identifying how you view in things, whether it's good or bad, correcting yourself is, I'm being stupid. I need to stop. That's petty. Let me let that go. Or that's valid. Whenever you get done with that, right? The next step that you cannot forget is empathy. Second step is the ability to sense the inner mental life of another person, knowing who that person is. So you guys know you, but in a situation, you're not considering them. Now you need to consider what why would they have done something like that? You need to consider, do you have too much bitterness where you can't even see the good in that person? You need to be able to consider why they could have said that, how they could have felt, what could have been going on in their day. And if you don't know, then that's where your problem lies. So now, with mindsight, you do some introspection for yourself, and then you practice empathy for the person that upset you, offended you, or hurt you. Well, they were abused as a kid. Or they didn't have this. Huh, that's number two. I mean, the same one. And mind, mind sight. It's just defining mind sight. Yes? And the third step in mind sight is integration of those two things. Deciding how what you notice about yourself and what you feel about the other person, how the two of those things can coexist. A lot of you will have healing in your past from even your abusers, 
after you get to the integration part. Your integration is terrible. Either you only know that you love them by staying in contact with them. You only know that you forgave if I keep calling them. And in some cases, you shouldn't. You know, in some cases, you need to stop talking to that person. You need to integrate what is healthy based off of what I see about myself and the empathy that I give to that person. Where is the healthy integration of those two things? Not just, they was mean, they was terrible, they was bad. All right, let's integrate. All right, let's empathize and let's integrate those feelings. And there needs to be some cohesion. Now you can move forward because you've placed your feelings, valid feelings, with their feelings or with some empathy, and you can let stuff go a whole lot easier. Yeah? So you have to have empathy. You have to know or assess what you think the other person might be feeling or doing in that situation. And now you need to integrate that into your life. Even if it's something terrible, they lie because they're selfish. Okay, so now if I say, and empathetically, they're lying because they're selfish, and I feel bad that they're selfish, <laughs> that's most of my empathy going to go, how do I integrate that into myself? As soon as I say they're selfish, I'm going to think I have been selfish at some point in my life. Right? That integration automatically pulls the speck out your eye or the plank. You see what I'm saying? You're like, oh, well, let me fall back. Which brings us to the next point. Number three is loving kindness. Go to Philippians 4.8. Philippians 4.8 is a great thing, is a great scripture for all of this mindful meditation and for your mind sight. Philippians 4.8 says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Some of you are toxic filled. And I'm going to tell you to your face. Because nobody's telling you. You're overly pessimistic, overly judgmental. Right? Everything out your mouth about somebody you don't like is never good. And if you are, if it is good, you're straining because you feel bad in front of people. But if you had it your way, you wouldn't say anything good at all. And situations go left, you think they're about to go completely wrong. Even when situations are good, you can't enjoy them. That's toxic. That's toxic. One of the ways, according to the mindset and according to your meditation, is the Bible tells you think on stuff that is good. You have to stop yourself from thinking about all the bad. You say, I have to stop myself from thinking all the bad. You do it all the time, and I don't know why. It's like you just like eating poison, and nobody's making you. Nobody's making you think these horrible things. No one is making you think about how bad you feel, how bad it was, how hurtful it is. And some days, that's the only ways I'm getting through the day. Because my mind will go to how bad it is, how bad it was, and I'm like, ain't nobody forcing me to think that. I'll handle that when I get home. Let me get my mind back on what I'm doing. You, can, you have control of that. You. Well, it ain't going to work no way. See, when you hear yourself say stupid stuff like that, you're like, you know what? That's stupid. Even impossible things can work. Well, ain't nobody going to help me. See? See how you're thinking? 
all of that toxicity. It's yours. And nobody told you you had to keep it. What's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to be overly optimistic, overly hopeful, and overly joyful, and like childlike naive about the dangers of life. Ooh, sounds like a terrible existence. You know all the dangers of life that can happen. Did it make your life better? No. Were you able to prevent yourself or protect yourself from some of the dangers of life even though you knew they were possible? No. So why get mad at the people that are blissfully childlike and whatever? I'm going to climb onto the top of this roof. I ain't think about falling. I didn't think I was going to fall. Why would I fall? Just, just climbing up. When I got up there, I said, like, oh, oh, this is why people fall. <laughs> this is slippery. <laughs> And then I'm, still, I'm at the top looking at the ladder down to the bottom going, how am I supposed to get to that ladder? Like the ladder down there. If I slide, I slide. Ain't no barrier to stop me from sliding. I'm just scooting on my side. <laughs> I ain't get up. When I got up there, I said, oh, this is dangerous. People shouldn't do this. <laughs> That's probably why they don't do it. Oh, people shouldn't do this. This is dangerous. Again, my childlike, my father in heaven is going to catch me. There is no problem. You know, I don't even, it, doesn't, it doesn't even register that I'm supposed to be afraid of something that seems relatively harmless. Right? The negativity that you have because you're so knowledgeable of good and evil is now working against you. It's working against you. You know, like, you know, they could have had a bomb. Who? Why would, why would you think the first thing is a bomb? Just toxic. A bomb. A bomb. Right? Please, they, they, they're, probably, they're probably after me. Why would they be after you? They don't like black people. Okay, okay, so most of them don't, but still. Why is that the first thing? Why is that the first thing? You need to recognize your own negativity and it's very toxic, and you need to stop it. You need to stop it. Put a hard stop on that. Hard stop. Mm. First negative, pessimistic thought. Hard stop. Mm. Think of something else. The more you train yourself to do that, the, neuro the neurological connections to this event with bad stuff will cease, and this event with good stuff will happen then you become a person that thinks positively. But you're not going to become a person that thinks positively if you don't start doing what? Thinking, Thinking positive. I'm yelling because y'all are acting dense. <laughs> you're acting dense. You're, you're looking at me like you, don't, like you think this is not going to work. And the only reason you think it's not going to work is because you don't feel like doing it. You prefer the problem be external and not within your stewardship. This is within your stewardship. You're the steward of your own thoughts. You know what stewardship means? It means somebody gave me something and I'm just supposed to take good care of it. He gave you a soul. You're supposed to take care of your own soul. It is not my responsibility or God's responsibility to make sure your soul is taken care of. It's yours. He gave it to you. You steward this thing that I gave you. And be careful with it. When you see it's getting all junky, clean it up. 
What you thinking? The maid service gonna come cleaning in a minute? She ain't. I ain't coming. Especially after I told you how to keep this room clean, keep dirty. I ain't coming here. Just li- live in filth. <laughs> like I tell Shamar, as long as your mess stay in your room, it do. He's great at that. He's great at it. He can have his space and he can live however he wants. But when your mess cannot encroach upon my space, right? Yeah, it's a good boundary there. And I love it for you that you are comfortable. I want you to be comfortable in your space, however that is. Yes? Unfortunately, 90% of the rest of the house is mine. (laughs) You only got stewardship of the room. The Bible says think about these things. It's a direct command. You are filthying up your own mind and life, and nobody is doing that but you. You think the worst of people? You think the worst of yourself? You think of the worst situation and outcome? You got to stop that. Come on, tell yourself, I got to stop that. I got to stop that. All right, number three, loving kindness. Colossians 3. Number three, the third way to reverse this epigenetics. Oh, I got to hurry. It's Colossians 3, 12 through 13. Uh, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Meditation changes your relationship to your thoughts. You realize that you are not your thoughts and that your ruminating and spinning stories may be unrelated to what's actually going on around you. Do you know what it means how you sit back down and you just keep running over stories and situations? Well, then what about this? And then he did this, then he going to say that, then probably going to do this. You just keep going and going and going and going. He says, stop that. Meditation says, stop. Ain't none of that happen. Ain't none of that here. Stop. It's not helpful. You think you're preparing yourself for some outcome. You're not. Yes? Compassion training requires you to actively work with your emotions and the assumption about yourself and others to release long-held resentments, hostility, and indifference. I'm going to do that again on loving kindness. Compassion training requires you to actively work with your emotions and assumptions about yourself and others in order to release long-held resentments, hostilities, and indifference. Like, whatever, I ain't fooling up with them. That's indifference. So you need to be trained in compassion. And that requires, I'll read it again, okay? That requires that you actively work on your emotions and assumptions about yourself, I would never, (laughs) and others in order to release long-held resentments and hostility and indifference. I just want y'all to know because y'all note-taking is so thorough that y'all the reason why this message is taking so long. (laughs) Put that on the podcast. Let them hear that. They hear writing, writing, writing. It says, if you want to show love and kindness, 
which is a necessity to reverse the effects of your childhood trauma. You have to deal with your emotions, your assumptions about yourself, and the things you assume about somebody else. You gotta deal with that. Because until you deal with those assumptions, how you generalize and, you know, what, I mean, that's what they did because that's who they are, you know, all of that. You gotta deal with all them emotions. And that's the only way you can unlock some of this hidden resentment that you have for people. And it's true. You don't say it's bitterness. It's just like, ugh. I mean, I ain't mad at him. I forgive him, but I just don't want to be around him. Resentfulness. Especially if they're in this family. You resent one another because you've made assumptions based off of what you see somebody do. And not, you can't do that. You got to get rid of the assumption. Yes? Well, they always going to do that. No, they're not. You, you always do stuff too? No, you don't. Well, I would never. You will. That's an assumption about yourself. You can't assume that you're so great or you would never do something so tawdry or so bad or so horrible. I would never do something so freaky. I would never. Oh, I would never. I would never. You will. And some of us have. Right? And then you have to stop assuming that of other people. They always going to be like that. They always going to be selfish. They always going to be rude, okay? They always going to be looking, you know, you got to stop assuming that even though if you saw it because you don't always, you're not always one thing. Are you always angry? No. Are you always selfish? No. Are you always lying? No. So this way, once you stop assuming things, you can forgive others, right? You can let go of some of that hidden resentment that you've been holding on for so long. Y'all need to to let that go. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Ephesians 4.31 is telling us any negative thoughts or desires or word choice or over or anger that you have towards someone else, you have to put that away. Like you're not allowed to keep that. You're not allowed to stay angry with that person. You're not. I don't care what your daddy did, how your mama did. You're not allowed to stay angry. You're not allowed to be petty, which is another word for malicious. <laughs> petty, malicious. Huh? It is. Maliciousness is an act of, of, of aggression or, or uh, attack uh, based off of a previous event. Retribution, exactly. So pettiness is the same thing. You're not allowed to be petty. Everybody need to repent for that. But my petty self. (laughs) All right? Forgiveness is the next one, number four. Loving kindness, then forgiveness. Loving kindness helps you to let go of resentments toward yourself and others. 
part of a healthy adult means developing mental strategies that help you um, keep that keep you from getting lost in the stories of your past. Ooh, let's do that again. Loving kindness, even though we're on forgiveness, we're going to that next. Loving kindness helps you to let go of resentments towards yourself and others. Part of being a healthy adult means developing mental strategies that help to keep you from getting lost in the stories of your past. You guys do get, you do do this. If you want to recover from childhood trauma, or be resilient as a child, then one of the things you have to do in loving kindness is you have to start letting go of the resentment that you had to yourself. Some of you guys resent yourself for some of the mistakes that you made. As a kid, you resent some of the stuff you did as a kid. You don't, I can't tell you how many people have come to my office and said, as a child, I was molested or molested another child. As a child, two children, as a child, we did something over here, we did something over there. Two children, my cousin and my cousin, or my sibling and my sibling. And it happens in my office so often, and people are so guilty about that. But you're gonna have to let go of that resentment of yourself. And I can tell you're carrying a lot of resentment towards yourself, and you have to let that go. Do you understand? You do, you're gonna have to just say, I forgive myself, and be kind to myself. People make mistakes, and as a child, Certainly, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm a child. You cannot hold yourself accountable as an adult for the things you did in your development. It's not healthy. Now you resent yourself for some of the mistakes that you made. You're going to have to let that go. Yes? You're going to have to be loving and kind to yourself. That's why it's so hard if you receive it truly from other people because you don't do it to yourself. I'll be quick. Like, Uh-oh, I messed that up. Oops, <laughs> get better. <clears throat> All right, let's go. I'm done. <laughs> I can't resent myself. Where am I find another me? It's me. I'm going to go run for myself. Now me, myself, angry at me, myself. Uh-uh, I ain't doing that. Girl, we messed that up. Yes, we did. Well, we repent. Yeah. Hopefully do better next time, and I'm off to the races. People don't even recognize how many mistakes I make. They're like, oh, Pastor, you be doing everything right. No, I don't. You just don't notice it because I get over it really fast. Guys, I messed that up. That wasn't a good book to assign. Uh, I tell you right in your face, but then I just go to the next thing. Amen? Amen. Let go of inner resentment, number four, and that's forgiveness. The last one, number five. The fifth way to repair your mind, your body from traumatic situations in your family life is to get the body moving. Yeah, to exercise. We're often storing physical and muscular tension from our fight or flight response for a lifetime. Your inflammation, your sore joints, your sore muscles, it's not just age. It's not just inactivity. Some of it is literally because you are storing tension. 
in your, your migraines, storing tension. And you can store tension in your muscles. And the more you store that tension, the sicker you are as, as an individual, right? And when your body doesn't feel well, your mind is not happy. Your thought, you have a hard time being positive when, you feel, when, you, when you're physically sick, right? So the fifth way, universal, let me give you the scripture for that, is 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, and it's a kind of a, a dual nature, okay? Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. It says, now when it comes to physical exercise, it is good to repair your brain, all right? But there's a limit. Some of y'all think that physically exercising will change every aspect of my character, personality, and past. It will not. There's a limit, all right? Let's look at, uh, what did I say, 1 Timothy chapter 1? Chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. How many demons have we listened to in teaching us that our lives would be better if we didn't eat meat? Our lives would be better if you just stopped drinking that dairy. I mean, your life would be so much better if you just eat right. Cut out them sweets. Amen. Will my life be better or just my physical body? And barely that. Because what he's saying is, this is the mind switch for you. Everything God created is good for you. See, we thought that once we came out of the garden, that now everything is harmful to us. And this scripture says, if God made it, sanctify it with prayer and it is good for you. That's it. So why are you rejecting something I made for you? Oh, because you got your degree and all? You got your degree and all? Adam and Eve, knowledge of good and evil? See, it's that doggone sugar that's bad for you. Overindulgence in anything is bad for you. So then it goes on to say what you should be practicing is godliness. Amen. Let's go down to um, <laughs> verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Then he says, verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Stop right there. Rather than focusing on trying to hear whatever the world says, that if you get this job, get this career, get this, go get this class, go get this license and get this done, then your life will be better. No. Go work out. No. It's not. 
And he says what you should consider of spending all your toiling and laboring is being godly. He says, and that will benefit you in your current day-to-day life right now, and it will benefit you when you die. You're spending too much time with the world's teachings on how to get your life right rather than the teachings we give you in the church or teachings of godliness. I say evangelize. You don't. I say read. You don't want to read. I I mean, it doesn't even matter what it is. You refuse to be trained in godliness to your own detriment. That's where you need to put your energy. Well, how many miles can I walk? I don't know. How many miles did the Lord suggest? (laughs) Well, how much can I eat? I don't know. What did the Lord say you could eat? Practice godliness. Not your own wisdom. You ain't that smart. Well, I think that if I just had 1,200 calories, shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Practice godliness. The working out you're doing physically is limited to what it can actually do for your life. The foods that you're rejecting is limited for what it can actually do for your life. But the most important thing is to recognize that whatever God has created is good for you. That's amazing. Rather than thinking it's always something going to harm us. I'm going to eat this poison and pray over it because that's all we got to eat. Makes sense. You pray over it and it won't harm you. The Bible says so. So you, You sanctify it with prayer. You take something that was meant for harm in other situations, and by prayer, you make it good for you. He gives you that type of stewardship. But you have to know his heart. Make sense? Glenda asked me, well, Pastor. Because <laughs> she was on her, she was on her uh, keto trip, and she read some, 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 some lessons on depression. And she asked me, she said, Pastor, well, I mean, I don't mean to be too forward, but if you could change your diet and that help you with your, your, your mental space, because I've read that when people take out carbs, it helps them with their mental space. And I said, she said, would you do it? She said, would you take it out? I, I said, no. You wouldn't? No. Number one, I don't eat sweets like that. I don't even eat carbs like that. And number two, for three years, I was barely eating and still just as depressed. I wasn't eating sugar for two and a half years. I just didn't have, I didn't want it and was still very much so depressed. I had to force myself to eat. Literally, she had to buy me shakes, protein shakes, like an old person just to make sure that I'm eating. You drink your insure today? Yes. <laughs> no, last time you almost passed out. I'm drunk yet, I'm drunk yet. <laughs> right? And what I was trying to convey is that type of stuff is limited to what it can do. And for me, if I do eat something that tastes good, please believe at this stage of grief in my life, I need something that tastes good. I do. Make sense? Mm, Standing all over the house. 